I wonder if I was to ask you what the, the book of Zephaniah was all about, would you be able to tell me what the thrust of its message is? I'm not asking this question to make anyone feel bad. I'm not asking it to see who perhaps is the, the greatest Bible intellect in here today. I'm asking it because it's a, I feel like the, the minor prophets are, are books that we all too often can neglect in our Christian life. Before I came to study the book of Zephaniah, before I came to read through it and look at it, I had not a clue what it meant. I hadn't a clue what it was speaking to. I hadn't a clue anything about the author. I didn't know what it was all about. Couldn't have told you a single thing about the prophecy. But it is a wonderful little book. And a wonderful little book that has a lot of application to the world that we live in today. And to us specifically as Christians. And so we ask the question, well, what is the main thrust of the book of Zephaniah? What's its main message? What is it trying to get across? It really is down to this. Judgment is coming to Israel and the day of the Lord's judgment is quickly approaching. That's the main theme of the book of Zephaniah. And the Bible mentions that phrase, the day of the Lord. It is mentioned a quarter of the times in the Bible here in the book of Zephaniah. So that phrase, the day of the Lord, that really could be what we sum up the book of Zephaniah to be all about. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is approaching. And there's nothing that Israel could do to stop that day from coming. And that is really what concerns the first two chapters of this prophecy. And so I want to ask you a question this morning with that in mind. If you heard that a message like this, the day of the Lord is coming and that day of the Lord is a day of judgment, a day of fierce anger and wrath where the Lord will, will pour out his wrath upon sin and bring judgment to the nations. If you heard such a message like that. The judgment that God would bring. To those that reject him. And to those also who have fallen away from him. What would your response be to a message like that? If the Lord came today and said that there is judgment to the, the town of Coleraine. And to this land, to this people. To this nation of Northern Ireland. What would your response be? I know my first response wouldn't be the response that we read of here in verse 14. Zephaniah, after he's brought this message of judgment that God will judge the people, he'll judge the surrounding nations, he'll even judge the capital city, Jerusalem. He then, after all of he says all of this, he says in verse 14, well, what do we do with this? Sing, shout, be glad. Would that be your response? I know fine rightly it wouldn't be mine. I can tell you I'd be thinking the exact same thing that Adam was thinking in the Garden of Eden. Where is the first place that I can hide from God and his judgment? How can I get away from his view? How can I get away from the sight of God so that he won't see me and consume me in judgment? But the Lord didn't just tell Zephaniah to relay a message of judgment, of doom and gloom. He didn't leave Zephaniah without hope. He gave him a message of hope as well. And this morning, that is really what I want us to think about. The, the hope that we see here at the end of Zephaniah's prophecy. Because up to this point, the predominant message of Zephaniah to the people of Israel has been judgment is coming. The nations will be judged. You will be judged. Your capital city will be judged. But now we begin to see a shift. A shift into what the Lord promises the blessing that he promises. 
And so I really just want to think this morning for a time on the subject, the crescendo of Zephaniah. The crescendo of Zephaniah. Because notice with me firstly, that here in chapter 3 we see described the Lord's people. The Lord's people. Verse 10, it says, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. And perhaps if you have a margin in your Bible, it might have a wee asterisk beside that word suppliants. And really what it means is those who pray and those who plead. Those who pray and those who plead. And this morning, that is what we want to be as the body of Christ. We want to be men and women who are given over to prayer. And not just any kinds of prayer, not just lackadaisical prayer, but earnestly pleading before the Lord. And so I wonder, even at the very start of this message, how is your prayer life today, child of God? How is your prayer life this morning? Did you pray today? Have you prayed this week? I'm not asking this question with a big club in my hand trying to beat you over the head with it. Because if I'm answering honestly, I feel every single day in the place of prayer. My life is not what it should be in the place of prayer. But let this be something that describes us as the people of God. That we are suppliants. Those who are given to prayer. Those who are pleading and earnest in prayer. That's how the people are described here. But also notice that they're also described not only as suppliants in verse 10, but it says in verse 12 that they are an afflicted and a poor people. Verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Harry Ironside, he said of, of this, he said that the faithful are found in weakness and dependence, owned of the Lord, preserved in the midst of all the surrounding corruption. People of God, the faithful are found in weakness and dependence upon the Lord. They're described as afflicted, described as poor. And that is the kind of people that God wants. Poor and afflicted people. And you might ask the question, well, why does God want people like that? I know if you're to go onto social media and the amount of time that we spend scrolling on social media, I've had to curb my own time recently because I've looked at it and it scares me, it shocks me. But if you ever scroll through the likes of Instagram, Facebook, and young people, you'll know what the reels are. You'll know what these are. You'll see so many people preaching a false gospel today, a prosperity gospel. We found one recently, and I showed it to my wife recently, about, about a man who said, if you just give more money to me, the Lord will come back sooner. <laughs> you laugh. He believed it. He believed a false gospel. But there are so many today that, that tell you that the Lord wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That is the three great things that the Lord wants from your life. Yes, the Lord wants us to be happy as his people. But his chief end is not our happiness. His chief end is his own glory. And a people who have suffered affliction for his name, a people who know their poor state, only leads them to depend more and more on the God of all grace, on the God of all comfort, on the God who grants us mercy after mercy as we sang in our hymn this morning. And I wonder, child of God, is this how you see yourself today? One who is poor, one who is afflicted. Because in the scriptures we read that great are the afflictions of the righteous. We will suffer for the hand of Christ. 
What a blessing it is to see ourselves in that manner. Why do I say that? Because David said in Psalm 40, verse 17, he said, I am poor and needy, yet what? The Lord thinketh on me. When we're poor and needy, when we see our state before the Lord, it only leads us to depend more on him and to know that his mind is upon us. And now we really want to come to the, the end of this chapter. We want to primarily think in verse 17. Arguably some of the most comforting words that we could read in all of scripture. And especially in this prophecy. But before we do that, I just want to preface verse 17. Because it's always good to get things in context. We fall into heresy if we don't take things in context. And so what is the context of verse 16? Well naturally it's verse... Or what is the context of verse 17? Naturally it's verse 16. It says, in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The context is a command. Fear thou not. It's always interesting when we come across these words in scripture. And I've probably said it before, even from this pulpit, from other pulpits as well. They are never alone. Those words, they're never by themselves. The Lord just doesn't ever say, fear thou not, do not be afraid, and just leaves it there. Doesn't explain to us why, doesn't give us a reason why. He always tells us as children of God not to fear, and then continues with the explanation, the reason why we're not to fear. It should be enough, shouldn't it, child of God? When the omnipotent divine creator of this world tells us as his creatures whom he holds in the very palm of his hand, do not be afraid. Should that not be enough? But yet the Lord knows our feeble frame. He knows our minds. He knows how easily we can falter and fail. And so every time he tells us do not be afraid, he is a loving father that gives us a reason for it. And so when he utters those words, fear thou not, that is the context in mind. And first of all, we see in verse 17, Fear thou not the Lord thy God in the midst of thee. There's the Lord's presence. The Lord's presence. Remember the context. The Lord is bringing judgment. He has promised judgment to Israel, the surrounding nations, and to the capital city of Jerusalem. But now he brings words of comfort, words of cheer to his people. The Lord dwells in the midst of his people. And notice that this is the, the third time in this chapter that we read that the Lord is in the midst of his people. Verse 5, if you look back there, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He's in the midst of his people. Then into verse 15, we read it there as well. It says there, the king of Israel, even the Lord is in the midst of thee. And now in verse 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee. And so we ask the question, well, why did God repeat himself three times? Why did he say three times in this third chapter of Zephaniah that he is in the midst of his people? Well, I believe that it's because we are all too often, we are all too prone to forget that God is with us. That God presences himself with his people. He dwells with us. Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Yeah, I will, I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. A promise from God that we see given time and time again, repeated many times in the scriptures. I will be with thee. Why did God have to continually remind his people that he would be with them? 
Because we forget. We're creatures prone to forget. Some more than others. I can tell you I'm more of one of the more forgetful creatures that God made. But yet God reminds us time and time again he is with us. Why? Because we forget that he is with us. Throughout the history of the church we've been called to live as the body of Christ. We've been called to live Coram Deo. It simply means before the face of God. We cannot escape his presence. We cannot escape his gaze. And therefore we are to live every day as if God was watching everything that we do. And he is. He's watching. He knows. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He sees all and knows all. And even as we meet here today as the body of Christ, we know that God has promised to be with us. He has promised in his word. And I know that Matthew 18 verse 20 can be pulled out of context at times. It says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The context of that verse really is church discipline, but it can be applied to the meeting of God's people as well. Even when there's a few people, even when there's just a handful, God has promised to be there. But I wonder, child of God, this morning, are you living in the light of of the fact that God dwells with his people. And even as we're on the run-up now, and I'm sure you've been in the shops recently, you've heard it over the speakers, you've heard the Christmas music, Mariah Carey's blasting out once again. We're on the run-up to Christmas, and what do we think about then? Emmanuel, God with us. The one who came to dwell amongst us. Who came to die for us. The Lord promises his presence. And we see it here in verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee. Are you living with that in mind today? That God dwells here? Not only dwells in in the place where his people meet together, but child of God, he dwells within you. We sing that hymn, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Spirit indwells you. He is in the midst of us. So there's the Lord's presence. Notice, thirdly, the Lord's power. Here in verse 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. That word could be translated as powerful or a champion. And we ask the question, who is greater than God? Who can hope to stand against Jehovah? Who is the champion of our own salvation? It is God. We read in Genesis 17 verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, I am the almighty God. The almighty God. That almighty God that appeared to Abraham way back in Genesis. That almighty God that appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush who said, I am that I am. That same God appears to us today but now he only speaks through his word. Now he speaks through his revelation. He is able to keep us in the palm of his hand. Child of God, I wonder, do you ever struggle with that feeling that sometimes we're just let go from God? Sometimes God's presence just isn't near. Yes, we know that he dwells amongst us, but sometimes we just don't feel his presence. We perhaps just don't feel his power. Do you not think that the God who has the power to save you has the very same power to keep you, to preserve you in the palm of his hand? Jude 24 says there, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. That word there, able, it's the Greek word dunamos. 
It's where we get our word dynamite from. It's speaking of power, mighty power. And it is God who has the power to keep us, to preserve us, to hold us in the palm of his hand, as John 10 tells us. And David asks in Psalm 24, verse 8, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And I don't know what you're going through today, child of God. I don't know what burdens you've brought to the house of God. I don't know what issues you're facing. I don't know what struggles you're going through. You may have come here today with many different circumstances and burdens, yet we are reminded in the scripture that the Lord, he is the one who is mighty in battle. It is his power that enables us to endure the trials of life. And so I ask the question, are we depending on him today? Are we depending on his power, on the strength that he gives? Because the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He alone is mighty. And we need him to give us strength, to give us power in this world that we live in. Notice with me, fourthly, the Lord's pardon and preservation. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will save. Interestingly, the, the Hebrew word that is used here, the root word for save, is the name Joshua. And that's the Old Testament equivalent of the name Jesus. And Strong, he gives a, a number of definitions of that word save. He said it, it means not only to save, but it also means to free, to defend, to deliver, to help to preserve, to rescue, and to gain victory for. It's really an, an all-inclusive word. And child of God, has the Lord not done all of this for you? He saved us from a meaningless life. He has freed us from the bondage of sin. He defends us from all accusations that the devil would hurl our way. He has delivered us from eternal damnation and hell. He helps us every day in this life. He preserves us in the very palm of his hand. He rescued us from death and destruction. And he gained victory for us at the cross. When Christ there was crucified for us. And he bore our sins away. He has pardoned and preserved you until this day, child of God. He has saved and he will continue to save. You know, we, we talk about that question, are you saved? Are you saved? It's a good question to ask people. But there's really three aspects to that question. There's really three aspects to being saved. I have been saved. That's the past. That's our justification. That moment when God declared us right in his sight because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And then there's the present uh, sense of that word saved. I am being saved. That's our sanctification, daily dying unto sin, killing our flesh, and living unto the righteousness of Christ. And then there's the future aspect of, of our salvation. I will be saved. That's that day that we will be glorified, given a new body, no more to be tainted by sin, no more to be tempted by sin, when we will be made perfect and brought up to be with the Lord. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will one day be saved. Let me ask you the question this morning. Are you saved? Have you ever placed your faith in Christ? Because he alone can pardon. He alone can preserve. He will save. Notice that it says he will save. All that come to me, says the Bible. I will 
in no wise cast out. Fifthly, notice with me here in this verse the Lord's pleasure. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rejoice over thee with joy. You think of that child of God. If you're saved in the meeting this morning, give me your attention just for a little moment. If I've lost you for a while, come back to me. He will rejoice over thee. To have the divine sovereign of this world joying in us, what an absolute marvel that is. I know my wretchedness. I know the many times that I have failed the Lord. I know the many times that I have not been what I ought to be. And if you're saved in here this morning, then you will realize that too. The absolute depravity of our own heart. There was nothing lovely about us. There was nothing worthy of salvation in us. But yet, even though we fail him time and time again, the hymn Christ the Victor, it gives us great joy, great comfort, great hope. It says, what though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well and thousands more, Jehovah findeth none. Our Heavenly Father knows the times that we feel him. Christ sees the times that we were weak, the times that we falter. And yet what do we read in this verse? He will rejoice over thee with joy. It is his great joy, it is his great delight to have us as his people. Even when we falter, even when we fail him at time, he still delights having us as his redeemed people for himself. The end of Jude 24, that verse that we mentioned earlier, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. It goes on then to say, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The Lord is joyful to have you as his own child. So let me ask you, child of God, what reason have you to be downcast? What reason have we to perhaps come into church, Bible under our hand, and a sad and a gloomy expression? When we have the divine sovereign of this world, the one who created us, the one who formed us and fashioned us, the one who redeemed us and saved us from sin, joying in us as his people, what reason could we have not to rejoice? And that leads us to our next point. Why? Why would the Lord take pleasure? Why would the Lord joy and delight and rejoice in us? Well, it's because of the Lord's passion. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will rest in his love. Literally means he will be silent in his love. Or he will continue in his love. Without change and without variation. As he has loved us perfectly in the past, he will continue to love us perfectly in the present. And he will continue to love us perfectly in the future. And we see this clearly demonstrated in Romans chapter 8. Please turn over there just for a brief moment. Romans chapter 8. If you were to ask me what I think the best chapter in all the Bible is, I would tell you the whole Bible is wonderful. Read it all. But I know that there were military chaplains and they were told, if you ever come across a dying man in the battlefield of World War I, World War II, read them Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is an all-inclusive chapter. It deals with so many different things. But here, at the end of Romans chapter 8, 
See what we read. Romans 8, and we'll read verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Marvelous words. Wonderful words. And you know, I, I live for many years. I, I haven't lived for that many years yet. I'm still quite young, I like to think anyway. But I lived for years in my Christian experience, thinking, if only I read my Bible a little bit more. If only I prayed a little bit more. If only I was a little bit more involved in church and in doing good works for the Lord. Then maybe the Lord would love me more for what I'm doing. And so I lived believing this. If I go to Bible college, if I completely surrender my life to the Lord... And he will love me more for what I'm doing for him. But the truth is, there was absolutely nothing lovable about me to begin with. Nothing. But yet God set his love upon me. And it is the same with you this morning, child of God. There was nothing lovable in us. He saw the sin. He saw the wounds, the bruises, the putrefying sores in eternity past. But yet it says here in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, still he spared not his own son. That word there means he didn't hold him back. Didn't hold him back. There was nothing restrained in terms of God's full anger against the sin that was laid on Christ. He neither held back his son as a proper gift of salvation, nor did he hold back his fury and wrath as it was poured out on Christ for our behalf. He didn't spare his son anything. And so if God didn't spare his own son, but he delivered him up to be our sacrifice, then why would God ever love us any less? He gave you and me the very best that he had to offer. His only begotten son. The perfect lamb of God. The best that he had to offer. Why therefore would he love us any less? Why would his love for us ever change? He cannot love us any more. He cannot love us any less because the love that he has for you, child of God, it is perfect, already perfect, eternally perfect. And that is why this chapter concludes and Paul concludes with that wonderful, those wonderful verses in verses 35 through to 39. The question is asked, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul was a, was a very logical man. He tried to work through Different arguments, different scenarios. And he goes down a long list. 
He goes through all the things that maybe he thinks perhaps could one day steal us out of God's hand, could perhaps take us out of the love of God in Christ. But the answer could be summed up with this, and he sums it up at the end. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not a thing. And that is why Zephaniah says in his prophecy, in Zephaniah 3.17, he will rest in his love. He will continue to love as he always has. Let me make it a little bit more personal to you. Child of God, your heavenly father will love you rests in his love over you. He loved you when you were unlovable in your sin. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us there God commended his love toward us even when we were yet sinners. Christ was sent to die for us. He loves you now the same that you're one of his own dear children. No matter what you do, God cannot love you any more. He cannot love you any less. And you know, if if we were to read this verse and, and say that He will rest in in our faithfulness. He will rest in your faithfulness. Then this verse would only bring despair on God's part because how prone are we to wonder? How prone are we to feel the God that we love? And that's why it doesn't say that he will rest in our faithfulness, but he will rest in his perfect love. On your best day as a Christian, God loves you. And on your worst day as a Christian, when everything seems to be going wrong, seems to be up against you, God loves you the very same perfectly. John 13, verse 1. If you highlight your Bible, if you underline your Bible, mark that verse. John 13, verse 1. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What a love. What passion is on display from our Savior. What a wonderful love we enjoy in our God who rests in his love. Let that bring joy and delight to you, child of God, today. Finally, we had seven points this morning. We've done well to get through them. And the last thing I want to consider is the Lord's praise. The very last line of verse 17. He will joy over thee with singing. You know, as we, come into, as we came into church today, we've sang the hymns, we've sang the praises of God, and that's worship that we have ascribed to God. We have worshipped God through singing, through meeting together, through praying to God, through reading his word. However, when God sings over his people, he is not ascribing worship to us. He's simply exclaiming his great joy, his great delight in his people being his own. There's something about that that I just, I cannot fathom. The eternal God of glory, the one who created you and me, we who rebelled against him and had to be brought nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ, he would sing over us. And yet we read it here plain as day. I wonder if someone was to write a song about you, what kind of a song would it be? I'm not wondering about genre. I'm not wondering about what kind of music it would be. I'm wondering what words would they write about you if they were to write a song? I know the words that my wife would write about me. I'll do it all tomorrow. I hear it every day. If he says it one more time, there'll be a price to pay. It'll be something along those lines because I overpromise and I underdeliver every time. 
But the song that God sings over you, child of God, it's a song of joy, a song of delight in what Christ, his own dear son, has done on your behalf. In Luke 15, we see Christ, he teaches in the parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and at the end of the parable of the lost coin, Scripture says in Luke 15, verse 10, Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Let me ask you the question, who is in the presence of the angels? It's God. Many people, they say that the angels rejoice when you come to the Lord. Yes, they do, that is true. But who is in the presence of the angels? It is God himself, the one whom they worship, the one whom they glory. And therefore, when you were redeemed by Christ, God sang in great joy over your salvation. What a thought. What a blessed hope that is. C.H. Spurgeon, he said, when God wrought creation, he did not sing, but he simply said it was very good. But when it came to redemption, the sacred trinity felt the joy to be expressed in song. Think of it and be astonished. God the Father is the one who holds his own daughter Jerusalem in his arms. He holds you as his child in his arms and sings as, as, a, as a loving parent would cradle their child. We're looking forward to that in the new year. When we can cradle our child, sing a song to them. Child of God, your heavenly father cradles you in his arms and sings a song of delight. And that is why I've entitled this message this morning, The Crescendo of Zephaniah. In music, a crescendo is when something builds and builds and gets to its loudest point. And this is Zephaniah's crescendo. The Lord sings over you. What a joy. After all the judgment that was pronounced earlier in this book, we now see here a God who sings and delights in his people that are his own. Believer, that is you. Please take that away with you today, that the Lord delights in you as his child. But if you have never trusted in Christ, then the Lord hasn't sung over you yet. But if you come to him today, there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels. The Lord himself will rejoice if you place your faith and trust in him. We're going to close with a hymn. Hymn 404. It speaks of that great love that our Savior has for us based on those words that we read in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever blessed hope, a blessed thought. And I pray it will encourage your soul this morning, child of God. Let's stand together and sing this out to the glory of God.
Father and our God, we thank you for that great love that you have bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, that we should be accepted into your family because of Christ. Lord, we thank you that it is an eternal love, that you will love us forever, not just for the years of time, but for eternity. Lord, help thy children, help thy people to live with these truths in mind. And may it bring delight, may it bring comfort, may it bring joy to their hearts, knowing that this is the God who loves them, that this is the God who delights in them. And Lord, in seeing that, help us, therefore, to love you more, to serve you more, and to follow after you with greater zeal and desire. Lord, I pray, write your word upon our hearts. Take us to your homes in safety, we ask, in the precious name of Christ. Amen.